This podcast is brought to you by the Uncut Podcast Network. Send some domoda for me, man. So, so, I <laughs> some kucha. Domoda. <laughs> Hi everyone, welcome to the Conversation on Cut. I am your host Abu and tonight I am with Len. We are back again. We want to talk about some of the current issues in the Gambia. I don't know, Len, what would you suggest we start with? There are a lot of things happening. Oh, maybe you just help us with a little bit of how things are in the Gambia. Because I, I, I understand the Ramadan is almost uh, at the corner and people have been complaining about the high cost of living and you know basic commodities how are things there how are things there it's i think it has become customary in this country that we whenever ramadan is approaching or during the month of ramadan then of course um, the prices of basic commodities would just somehow it's related to the demand and supply because if the demand is high of course um in the limited then we expect prices to rise. So I think that is what happens. And here, um, if you understand the market, you know that it is in the hands of a few, you know, big businesses. So a lot of hoarding also happens, not necessarily that goods are scarce, but because those who control um, the supply of a large number of the commodities here would just try to hoard these commodities at a certain period of time, especially during Ramadan. Just a couple of days ago, one of my friends, um, where I used to work, told me that he went to um, one shop to ask for, was it onions or, or vegetable cooking oil? I think it was onions. And he was told that um, a bag of onions was, I think, $600, if I can remember. But he, the, the shopkeeper clearly told him that if you don't buy it, this week, next week, increase. So, <laughs> so it's clear that, yeah, they, they just decide when, when to increase the prices. That is exactly what, what they do. They decide that, okay, um, next week we are going to increase the prices and, and, and that's it. So I think that is one thing that is really happening here. It is the cost of living is really high and people are really feeling it. The Ramadan is here. Um, it was last week on Saturday, no, um, not last weekend, but the weekend before last, I was in, in the North Bank in, in, in Miami. And then, uh, my sister-in-law told me that I think, uh, this 20 liter of, of vegetable cooking oil was, um, costing, um, $2,000, but she went to the market. We budgeted for the $2,000. She went to the market and it was, I think, 2200 and the bag of onion went for, I think, $680. And the bag of rice, which was costing, I think, um, the American rice, which was costing $1,000, I think, $450 went to $1,500. So, wow. yeah, so that is what is happening. Everything is increasing. So it's like when the Ramadan is at the corner, like the petty traders and, and some of the, the businessmen and women would just you know keep the price up there because they know no matter how high the price is people will come for it exactly that is what what happens they know that no matter how high the price is yeah this is ramadan and people will buy these goods so they just increase it wow 
that's just crazy because I was reading also like last year some of the people in the provinces were buying an ice block for $75. Mm -hmm. That's crazy, man. That's really, really crazy. That's being heartless, bro. Yeah, that is that is what happens, um, what has been happening. And I think um, especially times when they know that um, even in communities where rural the rural electrification project has reached, once there is problem with electricity supply, so the demand for this ice block um, really increases, um, especially in areas like the Basse area, URR, you know, and people would be going sometimes up to Wellingara uh, in Senegal to buy this ice block. So when they come back, they sell it like 70, $75. So that is also happening. It's something really happening. And under normal circumstances, this should cost like $10 or $20 maximum. Seriously? Yeah. Even $20 is, is too it's much? It's on the high side, exactly. So what do you think the government can do to help in that regard? I think um, what we have done in this country is to give traders um, the free leverage to decide yeah, um, whatever to sell price for. Because once the government comes out and say, well, the government has no say in prices, prices are um, dictated by market forces. And once the government itself tries to justify um, the hike in prices, saying that, you know, these goods and commodities are coming from other places, um, etc. That gives these people the leverage to serve. But, but I think it's possible for government to at least um, intervene to put a cap on, on the prices. Um, this can happen. For instance, you really know that these businesses, what they, let's say you know that there is no way that they would um, incur losses if they are to sell a bag of rice for, let's say, $1,400. Peg it at $1,400 and selling it beyond $1,400 could be considered a crime. I think maybe that's one thing. But on the other side also, I think, um, because this has happened in the past, like trying to take prices, especially during Jamaica's time. But we see that it's not something that goes for a longer period of time or is often violated by people. Because you go to certain areas and all the shopkeepers are telling you, we don't have it. Or they just sell it to people that they trust that they will not report them. They sell it at a high level for that matter, or people who can afford it. And that's it. No one cares as long as you can afford the price. But I think what the government should do now is not necessarily central government, even local government, uh, the local government um, councils or the municipalities can do this. I have seen this um, in other places. What they could do is you can have um, a community shop, for instance, let's say in Carnipi. Um, what the municipality, for instance, can do is knowing that, okay, if we are to sell a bag of rice for $1,300, we are not incurring any losses. Um, it's not a giveaway price. They sell it at 1300 and that becomes a municipal. So people who cannot afford the prices that are being sold in the market, etc., could go to these shops and buy. That could really force the other traders or the other businessmen to really reduce their prices. You need not to sell it at a giveaway price, but sell it at a reasonable price that brings profit, but also ensures that people do not suffer to the extreme compared to what these um profiteers are doing in the market. I think that is one intervention that local governments in particular can do in the respective um, local um, administrative areas. And that could really work to make sure that we control the prices or at least help people who cannot afford the high cost of living in this country.
through, as you suggest, government, you know, putting a cap with, with some of the prices or so. I think it that would work. That would work if the government uh, decide that a bag of rice would be 1,400 or 1,300 and a bag of sugar and stuff like that. I think that would really, really help. And one thing you highlighted that, for example, you know, if, if they're selling, if the government says a bag of rice cannot be beyond 1,400. And I went to a shopkeeper and he or she is selling 1,600. And, and I'm like, it's not a problem because I can afford it. I think that also has been a thing that has been disturbing us in the Gambia because as long as I can afford it, I don't care about the rest, whether they can or they cannot. I think um, control also, but you know that you cannot get this product beyond a certain amount. So I, I think we can do it. We can really do it. I, I agree. The the government really needs to step in to to because the way things are going, if we do not come with regulatory measures to check the increase of prices, honestly, even people who can really afford these commodities might not be able to do so in the next two to three years because prices like for every week after every week, if you go to the market, something has been increased. I remember I went to one um, just mini market at, at the Serekunda market just around the um, Serekunda police police station, and I could see how numbers, the prices of basic commodities from the powdered milk um, to how the prices has been changed. So you can clearly see how prices are being changed with the permanent market, and that's so. Yeah, this is something that just recently happened that the prices has to be changed with the permanent market. Wow. Wow. I hope something would happen in that regard soon, you know. Let's talk about the National Assembly. We have seen the nominations and um, everything went well by Savali's nomination and he got rejected on legal grounds. And there was the, the aftermath of it. The police did not handle the, the situation professionally. It was, it was really very brutal and very unprofessional but first before we talk about the police brutality and how they handle the situation what was your observation with regards to Sabali's rejection well i think um, this has been this some, some um, something that has been going rumored by people that of course um, Sabali would be rejected because of um, him being banned by uh, from holding public office by the the, the Ghana commission and mm. I think for some, for many people, I think it was not um, surprising that his um, nomination was not accepted. You see that there are others who feel that one, the commission does not have the power um, to ban him or to reject his nomination. And it's good that this has gone to the court so that once and for all, the court can really um, finalize this thing. But honestly, I think many people are not surprised that this ha this happened because this is something that was expected. So it would be interesting to see what would be the outcome of um, the challenge in, in the courts, whether the challenge would uphold that the um, independent electoral commission's returning officer has the power based on um, is it section 91E um, to, to to ban him or to reject his nomination or not? Mm -hmm. I'm for people like us who are not legally okay. Man, it was confusing because you would hear different interpretation from 
you know, different lawyers with regards to, you know, what was right and what was wrong. And, you know, it was really, really confusing. And um, if some of them are saying that the, the commission, the report, it was not a law, I mean, I don't, I don't see, even if it was a law, a law doesn't have to be uh, discriminatory. You, you cannot pass a law and, and you say, yes, Len, you would be suspended and Mr. X would be, you know, some some of them have been, you know, talking about it. I, I don't really know how this would go, but I saw um, a post or, or something that was uh, purported to be um, a comment from the justice minister talking about how uh, commission of inquiries are, are not, that they are not part of law and, you know, and mm. people have been reposting it. So if that was his stand before, and, and I believe he would still be, you know, with that stand with regards to a, a commission of inquiry, because most of these witnesses that would uh, appear um, on the commission, they were appearing as just witnesses. They were doing, they were giving voluntary uh, evidence and they were not cross-examined or so. So all this legal stuff, I think, uh, um, as you mentioned, um, the courts would help us and speed up everything. Yeah, I, I think um, that's a very important question. If um, the legitimacy of the commissions in terms of the the recommendations that emerge from it and how those recommendations are enforceable. If that legitimacy is questioned, then it means, well, um, even the TRRC's legitimacy um, would be questioned. And if the legitimacy of the TRRC is questioned or is put into disrepute, then it means anything that comes from the TRRC would be very much hard um, to enforce or to go by. So I think that is one thing, and it has a serious repercussion um, for the reform process, for the transitional justice process in this country, but also for the um, civil service, civil service um, sector reform um, process in this country, because these two are core in this reform. It seems as every reform that we've been talking about in this country are anchored on these two commissions um, mm -hmm. about um, security sector reform is anchored on the TRRC, judiciary sector reform is anchored on that, financial reform and all these administrative and civil service, the changes, etc., are also anchored on the general commission report and of course on the, on the TRRC so that people do not abuse their office, so that people do not aid or abet crimes or wrongdoings or misappropriations that are happening. So if the TR or if the judiciary or, or the courts throw out that legitimacy of, of the commissions, then it means all these reform processes or, or the recommendations emerging from these commissions would be stalled in terms of enforcement. That becomes a problem because it means everyone can say that, well, um, I'm not guilty or I've not done anything wrong. These were just commissions. On the other side, of, of, I, I think one thing I, I, I think is that even if we are not supposed to take the commissions or the recommendations coming from the commissions from um, a legal perspective, I think we should be looking at the moral principles that we can learn from these commissions. And that is why I think it's troubling somehow when we see people uh, try to justify certain wrongdoings by 
individuals during the Jame regime based on some legality mm -hmm. to say that well x or y is not guilty or has not committed any crime um, irrespective of how those individuals aided the Jammeh regime outside of their official um, scope of duty, outside of their um, job description or, or terms of reference, is something very much problematic because what we are telling the current administration and what we are telling the future generation is that tomorrow you can aid and abet any president. And at the end of the day, you can stand and say that, well, I am not the one who was responsible. I was just a secretary or I was just a minister going by the orders of my boss. So looking at it from that point of view, I think we should be very much careful in terms of justifying the things that happened in the past because it means we do not want to break from the past. But I want to ask, we're still repeating what's been happening because if we have to learn from the Janet Commission, for instance, I mean, there are people right now who are carrying the orders of the president, irrespective of whether it's wrong or lawful, they just they just are doing it with regards to the financial transaction. We all mm -hmm. have seen um, the 35 million, you know, dollars. Mm -hmm. And the audit, report, the audit report, you know, the, the national audit report from the National Audit Office have said that government have spent millions of dollars on COVID food aid without any due process. I mean, I, I so, agree. I'm, I'm so think we, we're repeating things that have been done in the past. It seems as we haven't learned because at the end of the day, that is my fear because we have all watched the, the TRRC um, uh, testimonies and it was real. the revelations were really, really shocking. And that has impacted us as Gambians very deeply. And, and all we want was let's just have justice let's just bring them to 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 the courts and you know let the victims have their happiness in terms of you know the perpetrators being dealt with i don't understand because i'm really worried because i feel like if it is possible that mr sabali the courts can say yes the iec returning officer because the iec returning officer was saying that i am doing this like he he was not saying iec is doing this he was saying he was doing this because of sex on blah 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 but if the court says you know you don't have that legal authority to do so because the amnesty for Isatun Jai, Edward and they were given chance to apply for amnesty and it got rejected I mean I'm, I'm just scared that nothing would come out of it um yes yeah, so so that's it I think um for the case of somebody of course the courts would decide and I think hopefully what happened would not uh, refuse if they really lose this case um, against Sabali. But they are not being really a brave doing what has happened in the past. For instance, we've seen the response of uh, some PIU officers, um, you've clearly mentioned that, which is actually um, a behavior that came from the past. So it's a continuity, meaning that that has not changed. But I think what has caused this also is that um, how many people have been held accountable for the crimes that they've perpetrated in the past? Just a few who've, who've been selected, for instance, uh, regarding the NIA, the, the nine NIA case, for instance. But other than that, we hardly see anyone, we've not seen people really um, held accountable because the argument has been that, oh, we have to see report to really hold people accountable for the crimes that they did. So 
in as much but, so still with the NIA nine, you know, nothing has happened yet. They they're just been going in and out of the courts and they're just playing with us, bro. But at least what I'm saying is, yeah. So all we've seen is like nine, uh, the NIA nine dragged to court just for that idea of accountability. Um, probably we 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 will allow or just see how the court um, would finally um, end with them. But the idea is that as long as people are not held accountable, it's difficult to deter others from doing the, the same um, practices or bad things that have been done in the past. Now, for instance, if people really know that um, people who have aided Jamme uh, for financial transactions, you know, the legal framework or whatever is in place in the country. And this also, I think, to some extent, touches on the issues of now, for instance, what happens if families of victims who talk, who believe, or who have evidence, etc., that touch uh, their family members, or, or etc., even if the state is not willing to prosecute these people, sue these people, um, these um, perpetrators, or whatever, to, to the courts. So these are all situations or scenarios that can come out. People have not healed. How are you going to heal? Family members who were, I mean, beaten to death. Um, they, they've been tortured to death. They are still going through that trauma. How would they heal? Do we have um, the support system that is necessary to help these people to heal? We don't have it. What are we going to do for them? So the future would be really interesting for this country, especially with regards to the TRRC findings and the recommendations that came with it. The recommendations have have been received with mixed feelings, you know, people, a lot of people have been kind of shocked or surprised with some of the recommendations and the amnesty and stuff, even though the TRRC in their, during their proceedings, they, they were telling people that uh, for you to have right for amnesty, you need to speak the truth. And maybe the TRRC felt that Sana has told the truth, but then the crimes that Sana committed, <laughs> you cannot compare those crimes to what I certain Jai said he was accused of following exactly. the And if she would not be giving amnesty because she followed the orders of her boss, I mean, that's just, it's troubling for people to understand, you know? And yes, the government has said they would uh, implement the, the recommendations but now I doubt if they would fully implement all the recommendations because I mean some people in the Gambia as we know they are untouchable, they will not be touched, nothing is going to happen to them Yeah, so um, I, I remember listening to the TRRC hearings and I I, I remember hearing the TRRC um, chair, chair, chairperson uh, Dr. Sise um, oh. saying that Crimes against humanity, uh, torture, um, degrading treatment, etc., um, would not be forgiven. Um, at least there was a scope of crimes, at least what I understood from what he said, that would not be forgiven. And looking at the scope of crimes that Sana committed, the tortures, etc., I think those crimes are not just ordinary crimes. And I completely agree that if you look at the magnitude of the crimes, of course, um we can say that at least at minimum they are at par at par okay uh with at least what the vp did if the vp um ordered the shooting 
of the students. But of course, um, it, it, it all boils down to how do you really decide that, okay, just because X has confessed to his crimes and apologized, we have to forgive him based on that. I think that is something that the government would have to struggle um, a white paper. It would be interesting to see um, how the white paper would treat these uh, classes of um, perpetrators, if you like, those that have been given amnesty and those who have not been given. But I also remember that uh, the Minister of Justice, Dawda Jalo, said that uh, there is no way or nowhere in the world where the commissions for certain day zones were implemented to the fullest. So government with a white paper and see, look at it um, to say, okay, we've accepted X, Y, or Z. And I think that is where um, the problem would really, there would always be questions. Why is X receiving this punishment and why is Y not receiving this punishment? Of course, like you said, um, all governments around the world are selective, but we have a government that is more selective than any other government around the world. So definitely, I'm not expecting that they would prosecute certain people or implement the recommendations with regards to certain individuals in this country. However, however, would that present, for instance, interest groups in this country? You have the Victim Center that is very much um, active today. Um, in terms of advocacy, in terms of awareness creation, et cetera, in terms of memory, um, would it take another step in terms of taking, um, how do you call it? Um, in, in terms of suing perpetrators who has, have been given amnesty by the courts or, or by the government rather, or by the commission um, to the courts, would then, would there be any law that can prevent them would there be any law to prevent them from suing these individuals simply because they receive amnesty? If there would be a national law, wouldn't there be international law or a regional law that would disqualify them? So, of course, I think for the perpetrators, seem especially those who, who have been clearly mentioned and found wanting uh, by the report, whether they are given amnesty or not, whether the government's white paper gives them amnesty or not, I think they would have a tough journey to carry on with their lives because if it is not internally, probably externally at regional level, the ECOWAS Court of Justice, et cetera, you name them, uh, might have a role in playing um, in what happens later. Also, a change of government can happen um, anytime. What happens if there is a change of government? If we all agree, or if the courts will determine that um, a commission's finding does not equate what comes from a high court, judge, et cetera, or from a high court. So that's why I said it would be very much interesting. And the legal battles, of course, uh, I think to some extent will also enrich our, our understanding of the jurisprudence in this country. What was your reaction with regards to the, the police handling of the UDP supporters? How did you receive it? Um, one, first, let me say that I was not surprised. I think I am that individual um, who is never surprised with the response of the police. Yeah, we have a brutal police in place and the idea of policing in this country and how we look at the police and what people expect the police to do is to use force. That is the reality in this country. Now you remember, you know, this is the recent one when um, after the election results were um, declared and later the standoff that happened between oh. the, the PIU and some UDP supporters around the Kairaba Avenue, you remember that case? Oh, yes. 
if you watch at, watch at, uh, if you watch those videos, you look at those videos that were taken by just private search, you could hear in the background, they were really congratulating the police for the brutality. Thank you very oh, much. Yeah, I, I, oh, oh, that's true. That was really, that was shocking, man. Thank that you very really, much. Wow. That is the idea of policing in this country that many citizens, except they are the very victims or their uh, relatives are the ones who are the victims or who are beaten. But that is what people expect the police to do. And that is what the police expect their fellow police to do. And that is what the police are trained to do. The police in this country are trained to beat people, to brutalize people. The military in this country are trained how to kill. That is what they are do. What, what that is what they are taught to do, and that is why when they go outside, that is what they do. So I'm I'm not really surprised that this is the response that they have done because honestly, reforms. Okay, this idea of reforms, etc., is just a lip service. But reforms are not happening because we are not ready to break. They are going to use those gadgets in the same way because you are sending these police into the street and you are telling them that these people are enemies of the state. They, they treat you like an you enemy. Don't want police to... in this country treat civilians like enemies. The police is trained to control crowd. The police is trained to restrain him or herself. But then if a police is just brutalizing its citizens and, and they're rejoicing about it, I mean, where are we heading to? Yeah, and you see, um, a former lecturer once told me, I think this must have been in 2013 or 2012, um you know there were these murmurings about student protests etc and he said to me you know these security men in the streets they are just looking for an opportunity to open fire on people so be rest assured that i can assure you that once people go outside they are going to open fire on people it's like the police are always sitting waiting for these kind of opportunities to show um how much good they are in what they do because for them what they do is this to brutalize people so the thing is yeah we are not surprised that this thing happened or i should say that i'm not surprised that this thing happened because that's the culture and gambians generally gambians generally we clap for the police when they do that it's just few of gambians who would condemn this thing but majority of the gambians would clap for them for doing this okay so because of that we should not be surprised that this is happening because it's a culture a culture that exists does not surprise people because it has been happening and it's still happening so we are not surprised what we would say is uh, maybe we can be disappointed that okay this is still happening in the gambia but it's not a matter of surprise nothing has changed yes nothing no. has changed absolutely let's talk about the the Kasamas incident the fighting there senegal has uh, launched an offensive because on our last episode, we talked about it a little bit. How involved is our government? I saw some pictures on social media saying Senegalese military have been using the Gambia as a, uh, as a gateway to get to the rebels. What do you know about it? Uh, yeah, I've also seen um, those pictures and reports um, on, on social media in particular. But personally, I've not traveled to the area, but I've been following what is being said on the news here, um, on the local TVs and, and radio stations. Um, in fact, this morning I listened to Coffee Time on, on West Coast Radio, and one of um, the interviewees um, on the program um, was from uh, Buyam uh, Community Radio, 
So really explaining um, what was happening um, or what is happening in the area. So those reports are there that um, soldiers have been using um, Trans Gambia in particular the brig to to, to um, travel um, to the customers, etc. But I'm not sure how to what extent this is happening or how many how much of their troops have really used the Gambia um, to to travel. But at least I think this time around, what is not happening is allowing um, economic or the economic forces, especially those based in, in the Fonis or in Buyam in particular, to travel and go and join uh, the fight in Kazamas or to pursue the rebels from that end of Kazamas. Because the guy who was interviewed today by Coffee Time um, from Buyam Community Radio said that it appears to him that um, even the Senegalese soldiers who are part of Epomic and stationed in Buyam were really surprised. They, they were just sitting and they had the explosions. And that was the time they, in fact, had to um, get up and start running or repositioning themselves again. So it seems as when they had the explosions, they were not even aware. At least that is the, impress the impression that the guy got. And he also said that he can really report that he knows everything that is happening, especially in Buyan, because he has his contacts and that is where he works. And at the time of the interview in the morning, he was um, in the radio uh, or at the radio station, so following what is happening. But he said that he can really report that the Senegalese contingent that is part of economic station in Buyan are really not involved um, in the fighting. Now, regarding how much our government very much straightforward, um, of course, there was a statement that neither Senegal would not be allowed to use the Gambia as a launching pad um, to do its operation, um, but also that um, rebels would not be allowed um, to use the Gambia as a base. So more or less like a, a neutral uh, position. But it seems as the government um, just mentioned that it has become aware that it is not involved in the discussion with Senegal, etc. Can the Senegalese soldiers get to Kasamas without getting in through the Gambia? Um, yeah, so that would be um, practically impossible because, oh. yeah, no military can enter the Gambia um, in military fatigue, especially in combat fatigue, going forward without um, the authority of the, the Gambia government. That is impossible. And um, also, why why is it that some of these key incidents, it's Sankare who is only, you know, giving press statements. Why is the president not addressing the nation. Yeah, that's where the, the problem lies, um, that one, Baro is not addressing the nation on this, and two, um, the, one, if Baro was not addressing, since Baro is not addressing and uh, the nation, and this is a security matter, um, defense, for instance, we would have expected the Minister of Defense um, to really address the security um, situation in the country since it involves another country and a rebel group. That has not happened. Internally also, the Minister of Interior has not said anything about what is going on. I think the only thing that we saw um, was that the military um, has been deployed um, to reinforce security along the borders. And that has been captured also by the local news that um, Yes, the military has been deployed and they are strengthening uh, security enforcing security along the borderlines. So because one point for us, and I think that is problematic. I think what Baro is doing is um, what we would call a quiet diplomacy with Senegal, 
um, we could even call it a secret diplomacy because we don't really know what exactly the agreement is with Senegal in terms of this or what is Barrow's real position on this because so far it is Sankara who is talking. But just to add that, um, it would be really um, foolish to tell us that, well, um, the Gambia would not be used um, as a launch pad and that the Senegalese military would not encourage the Gambian territory to pursue these rebels. When the Minister of Defense clearly went to TV and said that um, the hot pursuit agreement between the Gambia and Senegal gives Senegal the power to be able to pursue criminals into Gambian territory. And knowing that the rebels are considered as criminals, then Going by the explanation of the Minister of Defense, it would mean that the Senegalese military would have the power to pursue Kasamas oh. or these rebels into Gambian territory. That's very true. Because what I don't understand is, as a government spokesperson, okay, you're only going to say things that would be favorable for the government. I mean, you, you're not going to tell us things that the citizens want to know. You're going to tell us things that the government would look good but if Barrow is not talking about this stuff, you know, he has not mentioned anything because I am seeing Barrow as how some Americans have seen Trump being a puppet of a foreign country. It's, it's scary if Barrow can say even, even a thing bad or aggressive towards Senegal or so. It's just sad. It's just sad. This fighting or this conflict have been going for for ages we've never interfered in people like this but now it's it's just it's just scary because i think Barrow should do something about his uh, his personal security as so as long as senegal is responsible for his personal security we can just forget about things because he would never say anything where senegalese authorities would feel like that was that was you know off the board or so yeah, that, that's true. And I think um, the position that we have taken is a very dangerous position. Um, you cannot be, because if you look at the proximity of some of these communities in, in Fuji to, to, to Kazamas, you know that yeah, when there is a fight, of course, the likelihood for motor cells, etc., to land into Gambian territory is very high. And we know that people, these are Gambians, okay, within the Fuji, are running away from their homes going into the um, into other communities within the as far as Birkama uh, to mm -hmm. their relatives and other parts of the Congo simply because they no longer feel safe. I think um, I was it yesterday I was told that um, some schools in Fournier uh, have been closed uh, because of the conflict going on. So that is how risky it is already for people living within those communities. Important that we reinforce our security uh, personnel in that area to ensure that no encroachment happens into Gambian territory. But also, I think Baru should, in fact, tell Maki that um, using this kind of tactics is not going to end this problem. He did it, it did not work. Um, Ablaiwada did it, it did not work. And that is why he had to end up agreeing that let Jamme become a mediator or negotiate. Okay? Makisal started it, and somehow it was it started to work. So it's better to have, um, if you like, a negotiatory role. But probably that is up to the Senegalese government to decide. But what the Gambia government should do is to ensure that we are not dragged into this conflict because it's very much difficult to get out of these problems with rebels when you get into it. Now look at what mm -hmm. happened um, recently, just at the end of in the beginning of of the year, actually in in Uganda because they've gone into the DRC to, to fight the rebels, and then um, they were also in um, this country, in Somalia, 
they were also i think in mozambique uh, to fight the terrorists etc so terrorist attacks started happening in uganda for the first time mm-hmm. how do you fight someone who really wants to die okay who does not mm-hmm. even have a permanent territory or a fixed territory? <laughs> yeah. that's correct <laughs> but, but they know your territory they know where to launch an attack okay so that becomes really problematic so it is in the interest of the gambia to make sure that this problem between Senegal and the Casamas rebels do not escalate. And I think that is the position that we should take regarding Mbake and never to allow the Gambia to be used as a passage to go and fight these rebels or to be used as a launching pad for the rebels. It has never happened. So it should not start with, with him being the president. I mean, I also saw reports that he was he is supposed to go on a tour But then he sent an amount, I think it was $5 million for the displaced families. Yes. And some people did not welcome that. They, some observers were saying he should go to them. He, he should reach out to them than giving them money. And then some are saying he's uh, meet the people even should be postponed or, you know, put on hold. Well, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think this is a very serious matter and in fact any serious president in the world would have issued, I mean, if not a life address to, to the nation, but a televised speech would have been delivered now to the nation um, by the president. As you know, Gambians are not used to these kind of things. In fact, I think it has been a while when Kazama's, uh, the Kazama's problem went to this extent that Gambians would hear explosions, etc. It has been um, some time. So it, it would have been good for the president to assure the people that um, the government is doing everything, uh, that he is with them, that um, they are safe, and he would do everything to to really uh, make sure that we are not dragged into this conflict. But one thing, in fact, allowing the spokesperson, because the spokesperson is not even a minister, okay? Um, allowing the spokesperson to handle this or come and um, address the nation, in fact, through a statement, It's not something that many people would welcome. And I think he should have done more than that. So that is really a problem. I know the disaster management was there. I went, went to the area to see how best to help. But really, in like this, people want to see their president, to be assured that everything is going well. But to go on a tour, just to say that you are going to thank the voters, leaving this problem behind, without not even addressing them directly, I think that is a problem when some of your citizens are already displaced <laughs> you have said uh, on a uh, with a serious government with a serious president and i want to believe me and you would agree that we don't have a serious serious president <laughs> well uh, bro we're kind of running out of time i would uh, give you some some minutes to just wrap up and Yeah, that's cool. And let me just maybe start by saying this. I think generally the Gambia, especially in terms of our relationship with Senegal, uh, the current government has been either very much secretive or, or secretive or very much quiet about our relationship with Senegal, not really telling us what is happening or, or what are the justifications for, for the relationship or in fact how the relationship would really benefit um, the citizens. Um, but this is not just the government, because even the existing alternative parties or the opposition parties um, do not have a clear foreign policy when it comes now 
for all the parties that contested, including the independent, uh, as of all, I've read all of them, they are manifestos. But in fact, as of all, did not mention Senegal on his manifesto, not even once, okay, if I can remember from my reading. You look at all these other parties, except the PDOIS, there is no other party that mentioned the Casamas conflict in its manifesto. So what that shows you people, um, I think, are either secretive or do not want to say what their relationship is with Senegal or would be with Senegal. And that is exactly what Paro has done. His money, the NPP manifesto did not mention Senegal except that the current ties between Senegal would be strengthened. But Kazama's conflict was not mentioned. So if everyone is quiet about Senegal and the Kazama's conflict, knowing that anything that happens in Kazama's would definitely affect the Gambia, that is really something we should be thinking about as a nation. But I don't know what happens that um, as Gambians, most of the times we don't take issues of foreign policies seriously. We tend to focus on other things. But that is really affecting us because what is foreign is really not foreign because, yeah, you can call the Kasama's conflict a foreign matter, but it is really affecting Gambian citizens. So I think it is high time that Baro really looks at these things and know that this is not just foreign, but it is also internal. And he must learn from the mistakes of his predecessors. Um, Jawara had a very like close relationship with Senegal from 1981 after the 81 coup and crisis and his private bodyguard or personal um, security details were all Senegalese. But what happened? They were just withdrawn on a single day, even without notifying him in advance. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Barros should take note of that. Now what happens when Senegal withdraw their forces? Uh, would I have gained the trust of the Gambians? Would the Gambians be there to protect me? What would be the repercussions for this? Not just for my security, but the security of the entire country in general. I'm not thinking about the future, but because you are just thinking for the present. Uh, one day things can change. What happens? If Usman Sonko wins the next presidential election and he has a different position on Senegal's military presence in the Gambia, what would happen to the Gambian security? in the absence of these forces without preparing them for the task, okay? So I think um, there are many learning points that Boros should really make, especially in his foreign policy and relationship with Senegal, and that is really not happening. He has the opportunity to learn from others. Would he do that or would he wait and then others learn from him? History would really show us that. And of course, on the basic commodities, I think the most important thing in any country is food. Yes, currently there are people who can afford this, but the way things are going, well, I, I'm not sure in the future, even those who can afford it would be able to afford it because things get, um, prices get increasing every day. So you really need um, to do some interventions in terms of productions, but also policy-wise to make sure that there is a cap on prices or at least some production is done or some other interventions like um, having community stocks, etc., are in place to ensure that, well, um, people can afford these food prices because if people are hungry and they cannot eat, that's the end of any government. Thank you very much. Good to have you. Good to have you again, man. Thanks, bro. Thank you. Hope send some domoda for me, man. So, so, I <laughs> some kucha. Domoda for me, Man, make sure you hang out with Malang, man, you know. Oh, yeah, we would definitely do that, man. You should, you should. Uh, okay, bro, thank you, man.
Yeah, thank you, man. Uh, you know. All right, bro. Cheers. Yeah. Uh, you too, man. Cheers. All right. All right.